Being a CISO is like waging a never-ending chess game against players you don't know, can't see, and attack without warning. On this podcast, cybersecurity experts have a pragmatic dialogue on cyber risk, current attacks, and security trends. Welcome to the CISO's Gambit. joined by Michael Baker, Vice President and IT Chief Information Security Officer for DXC Technology. Michael is an accomplished cybersecurity executive with over 20 years of experience across cybersecurity leadership, talent development, risk management, audit, and compliance, where he has served as CISO across the aerospace and defense industry. Additionally, Michael serves as an industry advisor for the Cybersecurity Maturity Bottle Certification Accreditation Body. Michael, thanks for coming on the CISO's Gambit today. It's a pleasure to chat. Hey, thanks for having me, Sean. It's a pleasure to be here. So, Mike, you and I met a couple of months ago during a executive-level discussion. And what was fascinating to me was the scope of both your program and the business that you have responsibility for, which is DXC, one of the largest consulting organizations in the world. And I believe you're about 130,000 employees. Is that right? 130,000-ish women and men of DXC. You're absolutely correct. And, you know, getting getting into it, you had mentioned we are kind of a consulting shop, but I I would think traditionally we would be called a a global system integrator. Uh, But, you know, Going into it, right, I mean, really what we do is we deliver IT services, right, to modernize uh, operations of modern business here. Um, Across the entire IT estate, we have a number of offerings that do that um, globally. But yeah, 130,000 women and men, roughly 240 customers in the Fortune 500, right? We bring over 200 technology partners to bear, and we're operating in over 70 countries. So yeah, truly a, a global landscape and a global scale that we're dealing with. So I imagine that the complexities associated with securing that level of workforce are fairly unique. Would you mind sharing a a point of view, given your experience both here and at other very large GSIs? Yeah, I I think, Sean, like interesting, like I would, you know, I like to have a conversation and dialogue here, right? Because I think there's there's one part of, right? And one part of it is the complexities of the, the company you work for and how you know, you manage that from a programmatic standpoint. I think there's a second point, which is interesting. And I talk to a lot of CISOs and other people within kind of the security and cyber industry, which is really the path of a CISO or a cyber professional through the organizations and the need to scale up. Um, So I'll I'll just touch on that and then we can kind of go from there. I mean, I think, you know, number one, you kind of talked about my personal journey in, in the cyber industry. I started my career at EY back in the early 2000s, straight out of school doing cyber consulting, uh, which I, I've said a million times over, if you're going to start a career in cyber or accounting or IT or assurance or any of those uh, things, I think going to one of those big four consulting uh, shops is a really good thing to do. You're thrown into the fire. You're put into rooms that maybe <laughs> you had no business being in at that age or that experience level. But most importantly, you quickly learn to embrace change and adaptability, make sure that you as a professional and your skill set can really just transform to different things. You pick up a lot of different skills in that. And I spent nearly 14 years at EY doing just that, working for major companies across the U.S. I focused a lot on U.S. aerospace and defense, but I did technology and I jumped around a bunch there. Uh, But that really set me up for kind of my first CISO gig, which I started about eight years ago. As you mentioned, it was for a, a large uh, U.S. government contractor, uh, which which was a very interesting thing to dive into. And the thing that really attracted me to that was um, just different than the consulting world where you come in for a period of time, you assist an organization to solve a specific problem. You know, when you dive into that CISO role or that cyber executive role or even, even IT executive role, what attracted me immediately was the accountability that comes with that. Right? It's not a matter of just assessing or doing a report and leaving or maybe coming back and following up. You own it end to end. And I think that ownership and that end to end ownership was something that really 
got me going and really addicted me to this game, for lack of a better word. And you mentioned the global scale and the global challenges. I think that's what we all need to think about in our careers. Number one is what's next. And I think people sometimes can get stuck in what they're doing or stuck in a rut, get comfortable. And whether it's, again, the cyber world, the IT world, or any really world, I try to embrace the uncomfortable. And one of the things that I looked at was what path do I want to take? And when I looked at that path, I said, I, I do love cyber. I love running cyber programs at scale. So really the only um, path for me was to scale up and that scale from a, an employee number perspective, IT estate perspective, global versus regional, global versus national. And DXC is the perfect place to realize that opportunity. As you mentioned, the global organizations and the complexity associated with it is something that I'm still learning. I'm about 15 months into this job here. And, and yeah, to that point, I mean, when you're dealing with different countries and regulations, you're dealing with different cultures, you're dealing with different work habits around the world. It really drives uh, a lot of key decisions within the program. And it, it's not, everything's not as straightforward as it should be. So that was a really roundabout way to get to your, get to your question there. We could probably get to the specifics, but I think it was important to, you know, kind of articulate that journey because I do think if anyone hears this, when, when you look at, oh, you know, big global company, wherever they are in the fortune 100 or 200, I do think that people should be constantly challenging where they are and where they're wanting to go and make sure that they're getting outside their comfort zone, right? Master your art where you are. But once you've mastered that, continue to assess your skills, your team skills, your challenge level, and then go run towards the uncomfortable. And for me, that global scale was something that I really felt I needed and presented that challenge and, and still presents that challenge to this day. Michael, how did you know when you got to a certain point in your career that it was time to further push yourself as an executive and, like you said, get to that additional global perspective of a program, team, of an organization? Was there something within you that you had all this great success and you said, there, there's more here? Was it just something that you knew naturally or it was something that you had maybe had as a overarching goal career-wise? I would say militant and constant self-reflection. So I have, a, I have a few values, right? Me as a, as a, and I don't want this to be a, just about me and my career journey, but uh, you know, those values for me are, you know, related to how I run a team and, but how I run myself as well. And, and how I run myself is, is pretty simple. I, I don't want to be the person who is at a company for like a year and just leaves. I don't think that's long enough to really make a difference or when you leave to say, I left it better than when I came. Or I really learned something, or I really dove into a new skill, um, or I really mastered something different, right? Um, so for me, I have kind of this self-reflection in two-year increments. It works for me. When I look at starting the CISO journey out at the first job here about eight years ago, you know, I remember the first year was kind of, okay, I'm just trying to figure out what I'm doing and how to survive and really get through kind of that imposter syndrome, really build the self-confidence in the role, and then building the program that second and that third year and really being transformative about it, right? Uh, seeking opportunities or look, I, not seeking, being offered opportunities to, to lead things like large acquisitions, mergers, and things like that. Every year on those two-year increments, I could look back and say, I'm having a lot of fun. I believe in what I'm doing. But most importantly, I'm learning something and I think it's providing value to me, some utility to me in some way. But then when the time comes and you think that 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 challenge is gone, I think you, you really need to understand what your next move could or should be, right? For me, I, I want to work in transformational programs. That's what we do at DXC. We're constantly transforming and improving not just our cyber program, everything across the board at DXC. DXC stands for delivering excellence for your customers and colleagues. You can only do that if you're constantly looking at ways to improve that excellent, either delivery or whatever. So for me, that's just, that's the matter of how I came upon that conclusion. And I want to be transformative. I want to be a, a culture champion. And I want to work for companies that embrace transformation, embrace culture change and, and things like that. So 
at that time, it was just, it was time to move on and, and get that new challenge. But then you start over again, Sean, right? You, you sit back and you say, oh man, I really miss being so comfortable at night, like year four or five, when we are just more operating and kind of iterating and slightly improving. You know, when you, when you started again, which just full transparency, this is the, I'm only on my second CISO gig here in year eight. It's definitely, um, it's a shock. Number one, I would say it's an ego check. You go from where you think you know everything to where you, you know, you know nothing. Um, and you got to really, you got to really dive down deep in your values. You know, those are things like humility and leading with trust and stuff like that, leaning on mentors and, and going from there. Which yeah. I believe many of us in the industry suffer from some form of it. I know I certainly have. How did you overcome aspects of that? Was it that humility of saying, Hey, I know this portion of what I do really, really well. And I'm an expert here, but I'm okay with these other sections, perhaps that I'm not as strong or as informed yet. Is that part of it? Oh, it's a complicated question. I think, first of all, I think everybody has that to a certain degree. I think the more and more we talk about it, the better, particularly in the cyber world. You have it. I think it depends also kind of how you came into this world. So you have some people who come up very technically. That was not me. But then when they get in a room where it's all soft skills and influence and and having those developing those connections or that customer intimacy, they may be like, I'm much more comfortable behind the screen and doing that stuff. And, and you get the that syndrome. I have it a little bit the opposite. I'm I'm a technologist. There's no doubt about it. I know technology and I, but I mainly know technology and large puzzle pieces that fit together to make an effective program, right? To protect our company's data and our customer's data. So, so I think it depends on where that kind of creeps in, right? So in, in my personal case, it's, I know when I get in a room, I'm not the smartest technologist in the room. And I think just acknowledging that and being open about it, being open about strengths across like a diverse team is really the best way to overcome that that related to a specific skill set. But then I think there's, there's a big deal to do where if you reflect on an annual basis, which, which we like to do on our team across our, our broad IT and CIO team, we reflect on an annual basis on those accomplishments. So I think the days or the meetings where you sit in a room and you say, Ooh, I don't know if I belong here. Why am I here? You know, and you ask yourself those questions, there's strategies to get through that and be calm and manage that level of anxiety. But uh, what for me is great is quarterly or twice a year or even annually, when you look back, you look at the program that you and the team put together and the wins that you strung together and you look at where that program is then, it really builds that confidence over time. So I'm not going to say that I, I've, I've licked that problem. I, I don't think you ever really do. But I do think that that's an active management and self-confidence issue that people need to really lean into. Um, I think that's number one. Number two, I said this earlier, right, Sean, like you got to embrace the discomfort, whether that's in your professional life or your personal life, right? I'm personally a runner. I I don't run as much as I used to, but being a marathon runner, a half marathon runner, that is just a level of discomfort and intimidation that you get. Like when you have to run a 15 mile training run or something on a Sunday, you're like, oh man, that is pure discomfort. The same thing in your work life. We talked about constant analysis and you talked about mentors. Being open and honest and communicating with your mentors or your work colleagues on, hey, I'd really like to be put in that situation. I want to go to that meeting. I want to I want to sit there. Even if I don't talk, maybe I just observe this one or I do something else. Um, being open and honest about that and driving your career, right? And taking ownership of that, I think is so important, right? To help just in the macro view for kind of that sort of imposter syndrome that you may have. So yeah, I have long random answer to your question, Sean, but that's, that's kind of what works for me. One of the things that I've observed over the years, and I know certainly in myself and certainly amongst our peer group has been this, how do I approach the line of business? How do I approach my stakeholders to make a compelling case for aspects of my program or additional investment. What have you found to be successful in your experience when you're approaching an LOB and let's say you've got an initiative towards whether it's 
a zero trust initiative, maybe it's an MFA initiative. I'm just using these as examples, obviously. And you're trying to position the positives and get their buy-in and maybe even some of their budget. What have you found to be successful, at least in your current line of business, where so much of the business is out there daily in front of the customer, whether it's your sales team, your consultants, your advisory groups, all of these organizations, what have you found to be resonant when having these conversations around investment prioritization that have, that have worked well for you? Well, you mentioned a couple buzzwords. John, he said zero trust. You said MFA. You said this. Don't use the damn buzzwords. I think that's probably number one. And I'm going to turn this back around on you. What, what's worked for you here in a second, right? Because I'm interested in, in your journey as well. Um, my, my biggest thing that I've always really anchored on, right, is when you're a, a CISO level or that sort of level, right, you manage cyber or security, whatever the word is, as a business risk. That business risk is just one business risk and a whole number of business risks. Right. Like, so it could be a financial, a regulatory, a legal, a this, a that. Right. So, your job is to manage that risk and communicate that risk as effectively as possible to non security or cyber people. So, how do you do that in a common language? I think that's, I think that's number one. I think number two with this, and I've, I've said this before on other podcasts, is us in the security industry. We love to think we're the most important risk in the room, right? Uh, we, it's like, true. We, lo- we love to think we're the most important, right? That one end of life system, man, we get emotionally wrapped around it. Some risk trade-offs that are made outside of our control, we tend to get emotionally wrapped around it. So that the emotional control around how you manage those decisions, like for me, for my stakeholders, I have a global CISO that I work very closely with who's excellent at his job that, that helps translate those business risks alongside me. I, I work for a, a, an amazingly transformative CIO as well at DXC and, and a super cyber-focused global leadership team. Success for me is making sure that at the end of the day, regardless of what that trade-off is, can I look myself in the mirror and say, I gave them the data needed to make the most informed risk-based decision? So if I can do that, I'm, I'm good. I let it go at that door and I go walk my dog or I play pickleball or whatever the sport of the day is. So I think that's like the number one thing for me. But the, the second thing is as cyber people too, we have to be maniacally focused on business acumen. We have to understand how the business works. Like that's a complete not cyber skill set. Um, you have to read the reports, the annual reports and disclosures. You have to be on those quarterly earnings calls. You have to understand, in, in our case, the offerings and how we're going to market and what's important to the business owners. Because if you don't speak their language, Sean, no one's listening to you, right? And maybe they'll listen to you, but they'll listen to you better if you can develop that intimacy to say, I know what you're struggling with and what you're dealing with in your kind of corner of this organization. And, and thus, I know what's important to you. I think that goes for any technology solution, right? Like you don't, we're not going to promote a a certain piece of technology or something like this. If it doesn't drive value or growth in the business, that's why we're all here to do that. So I think this is a different skill set that's been emerging. I mean, this is nothing new, but this has been emerging really heavy in the last six, seven years where the CISO is really getting that, that senior leader exposure, that board level exposure. How prepared are you to tell the story? to develop those relationships, right? To, to keep it simple and allow them to make the best risk-based decisions to allow the company to continue to operate and, and be prosperous. So that's, that to me are kind of my guiding principles around that sort of alliance building across the company. This idea of knowing how the business works harkens back to something I used to advise mentees back in the day, which was before you get started, in any senior leadership role, specifically the CISO, you got to know how you get paid. Where does the funding come from for your position? How does the organization achieve its mission? Is it revenue-driven? Is it mission-driven? Because it's a little disconcerting where you'll have a senior security leader 
And to your point about we're the most important thing, they kind of lose the plot, which is why are you there? You lose the plot. Absolutely. Yep. When we were preparing for the show, Dan and I were chatting a, a little bit about a, your background, and you've been very involved with the creation and supporting and evangelization of different industry standards. Um, in fact, uh, I was watching a panel that you did at RSA about a year or so ago with some of the folks responsible for CMMC. And we're starting to see this requirement for private organizations that are not necessarily yet moving into, let's say, the governmental space. Right. What would you say to somebody that's currently in private industry, perhaps flirting with moving down the path of certification? Where should they get started? Because this has come up in a couple of different discussions where an organization is flirting with it. They want to know a little bit more, but they struggle to figure out where do I get started? Well, certification is nothing new, Sean. Like we've had ISO 27,000 certs for a while in terms of how to run the program and things like that. I mean, it's, it's, it's just different frameworks. Like these are tools, right? So like when you're looking at a, setting up a, a, a cyber program at a company, you're, and you, you were going from the ground up, you'd say, okay, what standard would I use? I would use an ISO-based standard. I would use a NIST-based standard. You know, I'd use the cybersecurity framework. Um, in this case, as it relates to what you said, from a government standpoint, they use a, a standard called NIST 800-171, you know, 110-ish you know, controls that you have to implement across your systems to properly protect data. Um, what I would say to people there is, you know, here at DXC, just to make it a little bit about us, right? We have the unique honor and privilege to serve a few of, of the major government contractors here in the United States. So, like I said, it's an honor and privilege to work on behalf of those companies and it's an honor and privilege to work on behalf and with the U.S. government. I spent seven years of my life, you know, working through a government contractor. And what comes with that is a lot of responsibility. You have to do the basic stuff, right? I mean... When you look at NIST 800-171, as opposed to 853, not to get kind of nerdy for the audience on frameworks, right? 853 is an inherently federal document with, depending on how you count, hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of requirements and documentation requirements and the like. They made NIST 800-171 to be a little bit more simple, straightforward, open to interpretation in terms of how you put that control in on your network, but still pretty comprehensive in terms of protecting the data that that you see fit to protect. So in the case of, you mentioned CMMC, that's a type of data called controlled unclassified information, but it could be anything, right? It could be your super recipe. It could, it could be your, your secret sauce associated with Zscaler and the code. So I think like the number one thing that people need to do, Sean, is to really take a data-centric approach to how they're securing their network and their services. That affords an opportunity, as you mentioned in the earlier, question to apply investment where it matters. Where is the data that means something to Zscaler, that means something to a DXC, that means something to a DXC customer, means something to the U.S. government as a customer, um, to apply that and apply it with a level of rigor, right? And, and for lack of a better word, just get after it. You have to start building that in. It's hard. Uh, it's hard to do that consistently across a broad environment. But the work is the work is absolutely needed to protect that data, right? So to get started, you you pick the standard. Don't be afraid of having to get a certification because all that means, Sean, is you're going to get audited, right? I, audits for me, if I take a positive spin on it, is just an opportunity to improve. If you get audited and you have a finding, you go back and you say, this is great, right? I want to improve on this. I want to use this as a learning opportunity or, or, a, or a, way to get, a way to get better. I think too many people look at audits and things like that as a gotcha sort of exercise. But if you have the proper culture of continuous learning and iteration and, you know, fail fast and get better and stuff like that, I think audits can be used really as a tool. Again, identify your data, pick your framework, right? Constantly measure against that framework. Encourage outside entities, if needed, to, to look at that if they have to and leverage that feedback just to continuously improve. As you know, I mean, this, this industry is so, 
fast and rapid in how it's iterating, both threats, both capabilities. I mean, vendor landscape, everything's so crazy. A little bit of normalcy and structure around that program that's provided by these frameworks is in, in my in my case, it's a welcome sight, right? Amongst all the all the chaos that we have to deal with. Yeah, sometimes these standards can really feel like a big rock in the middle of the ocean and you're just trying to get a little bit of breathing room to understand where are we all starting from a implementation standpoint. And I've seen that be pretty successful. But like, so Sean, like compliance is a bad word. I'm never going to say compliance equals security. But what I will say, compliance is a tool. It's a tool. Like we work across major industries, insurance, finance, government contractors. These are obligations, but they're also tools. You had mentioned before, how do you talk about cyber investments or costs or things like that? I mean, the lowest base level of that conversation is, well, we just have to do it because we have to comply with the expectations. So compliance in my, in my thing, it's just not a, it's not a naughty word. Now I do think it gets to be, you know, somewhat misconstrued when people go, well, I'm just going to comply and that's what I'm going to do because I don't think that's good enough. I think you, you have to comply and then everything above that is something you're doing to iterate your program and make it even better. Yeah, it becomes sometimes in certain programs, not just table stakes, but the only stakes. And that almost always ends up being a disaster. You said it ends up being a disaster. I agree with you, right? Because if your North Star is is, is right there and it's static in this world, then you're really not, you're not driving for that continuous improvement. I mean, again, we look at this industry, Sean, like I've been in it eight years as a cyber executive. Um, and I know you've been in a lot longer, right? I mean, it, it is constantly, there is no compliance framework that's going to meet the needs completely at this point in time without you looking at what's between the lines of those words, right? So you may have 110 requirements here. That's a good baseline to demonstrate that. But like, there's a lot of stuff and nuance between that in how you execute and how you execute with precision. And that's what kind of separates the, the, the great programs from the good programs or just the, the good enough programs. Now, as the scope of not just compliance, but also risk management continues to increase, whether it's because we're partnering with external organizations that are providing a particular service, for example, in the case of healthcare, where you have uh, business associate agreements, or in the cases of some of the requirements for federal contractors, which I know you guys aren't. But what I'm curious about is when you're looking at your ecosystem of, let's say, vendors and business partners that are helping deliver on your mission Mm -hmm. and on your program, historically has been difficult to keep a tab on a lot of these organizations, specifically from the perspective of continuous compliance. And I know that this is something you addressed in in one of your RSA talks where you said, yeah, continuous compliance is a very important component, but I'm not sure that the entire industry, it's not that they don't see it that way. It's that the the doing, the making of this type of program or this aspect of a program is pretty daunting. What have yeah. you seen to be successful in this? Continue. I think continuous compliance is a word. I'm not attacking your question, Chai, but like when you say continuous compliance, I, I think that's lost on it, right? Because I think, I think what you're trying to say, I don't want to put words in your mouth, so just jump in is, yeah, yeah. You know, I think you're talking about the continuous monitoring, the continuous dialogue, the continuous understanding of the security posture of a third party where there's an exchange of data, where there's an exchange of responsibility, right? And I think that's the biggest thing. And, it, and like I said before, compliance does play a role in that, right? Like if you're getting a cloud provider on behalf of the federal government, or you, you got to be FedRAMP, right? So that's that, that's the base. But I, but again, it's the, the nuance is between the compliance, right? So if you look at, if you go back and you, you think of two main parts in this question, one is just general third-party risk management, supplier supply chain management, right? Or supply, supply chain risk management. And I think when you look at that, you look at a legacy process, you know, when it, I'm thinking like late 2010s, early, late 2009 to 2012, you know, that kind of time frame, when cloud was just kind of emerging, 
right? We ran a lot of like static processes where it says, okay, we're going to use this cloud provider and we're going to send this questionnaire and they're going to check off that they do a couple things that give us a little bit of comfort and we're going to take that and we're going to file it away. You know, we may come, we may bring it out every year and dust it off and ask them again, but it's very manual. It was static. It was point in time. And that just doesn't work, right? So you look at where that's evolved over time and a lot of the tools in the markets come to meet us here, right? So from a general level, my question is, if I'm going to do business with a customer or sorry, with a supplier and say I'm going to exchange data or I want to make sure that they have an at least an equivalent program as me at a baseline level to protect that data on behalf of me or, the, or my customers or protect my reputation as their business partner, right? And I think those are the two main things. So how do we do that? The only way to do it is continuously. And the only way I see to do that is to leverage some of the tools on the market. I'm not going to say which ones they are. I'm sure people know what, what they are, but there's a lot of opportunities out there to, to get that level of intelligence continuously and also augment that with intimacy and conversations with the third party themselves, right? To have those conversations, to know the CISO, to, to have those EBCs and to really talk about cyber in an open manner in terms of how can we generate trust and equivalency between the two programs. I think that's, that's kind of number one. Um, and then doing that continuously is key, as I mentioned. But then number two, last couple of years, as you know, software supply chain. That rules the day, man. We talked about it before we came on the air today. So I think about that and that, that to me is a little bit more emerging, right? So I just talked about the 10 year journey of just general supplier risk management, but secure software and the secure software supply chain, I think is the topic for the next five to six to seven years. This is something that keeps coming up in a lot of conversations with other security executives. One of the things I keep hearing is bill of materials, bill of materials. We need a software bill of materials. And for some organizations, that's a multi-year project to unfurl everything that makes up of a particular product. Is that what you're running into or at least observing? Yeah. And not just on the vendor side, on the consumption side as well. So, so let's go back for the audience. So like when we look at the, clearly the threat of solar winds a few years ago and, and a few other instances the last couple of years, right? Really shined a light on software supply chain, the security associated with that. Where where I mentioned before, it's kind of a, a shared responsibility model with a cloud provider or an exchange of data with a third party. This is, you're consuming this software. And how do I know that this software carries with it the integrity that I expect it to, right? It doesn't have some backdoor built in or something like that. If you just look what's gone on between the actual incidents that we've all been a part of, we know of that have been in the news. And then you look at some of the literature that has at least come out of the US government and, and other governments or, or major organizations around the world. You look at President Biden's executive order a year and a half ago that really brought up the notion uh, that there needs to be an all of, you know, all a country effort around secure software supply chain, including, as you mentioned, bill materials. Then you look at the national cyber strategy that was just released recently, not just the strategy itself, but the implementation steps, right? And that really doubled down on those topics that you said. I mean, the number one thing is if you're creating software for consumption, you need to be able to build in, but then also demonstrate a secure software development environment. Those secure software development practices, there's, there's NIST documents and standards associated with that. But how are you building that? But more importantly, how are you demonstrating that to your customers and demonstrating it openly? And I think that's the, that's the base level. That's the base level thing right there. I think that's number one. But then you got into bill of materials. So you, know, you look at a strategy, the next thing after that is, well, there could be liability associated with it. And that, that was brought up in, in the national cyber strategy recently, which is a little bit of an enforcement sort of foreshadowing there. And then both of those documents double down on the software bill of materials. So, you know, the great people at CISA are working on that, right? Alan Friedman and a whole bunch of people there are doing amazing work there. That is really just emerging. And you mentioned how, how hard it is. I, I am not an expert. I just want to be very clear, but I know some experts I, that I have the fortunate uh, ability to talk to and throw ideas off of. But then you look at that and you go, okay, we have to unfurl the code, Sean, or start building it new. You need to be able to generate a bomb 
you need to be able to then package that and deliver it to an end user to what's the purpose to demonstrate trust, right? Here, here's my transparency, my little recipe list for software. The whole outcome of that is to augment a customer like myself to say, oh, I trust the software more and more, and I can leverage this piece of data to help with recovery or incidents that would have to, to investigate. But then, then there's another question of, okay, how do I receive that bill of materials? And then what do I do with it with limited resources, right? Depending on what industry you're in, you produce a VEX or a vulnerability report. You have to, you, you act on that. Um, you have to be able to query it, to look for libraries that may come up as vulnerable, et cetera, et cetera. So I think we're really in the infancy of that. Um, and I think there's a few technology companies kind of leading the way and prepared to speak about that. There's definitely some emerging market around that consumption that I said, uh, but everyone has to be thinking about it. It's been in two major, at least in the, in the U.S., like there's, it's been foreshadowed in two major documents. And, you know, I think there's two sides of the coin. Is it too much transparency, which gives our adversaries an edge? Or is it good transparency of which I can then have more trust in my suppliers and vendors and vice versa? So I think, I think there's arguments on either side, but I think what you, you hit the nail on the head, it's really like the next couple of years is, it's how we're going to realize this vision, right? Of a, a software ingredient list that we can use to get the transparency to truly do vulnerability management where vulnerabilities lie, which is in, you know, the complicated stack of software that's delivered in a lot of the products that we use today. So you bring up a really interesting point, this idea of, providing the level of transparency that's required to conduct and establish a working relationship with a vendor. But this very real risk of, is this information that's being shared something that could be leveraged by an adversary? We know for a fact that there are organizations that are out there that will pretend to be a customer, will pretend to uh, want to do business for the purposes of getting more sensitive information. From what you've observed and the way that you predict this might go, how will we as an industry strike that balance where you're doing all of this in good faith and at the same time, you could very quickly find yourself in some deep water if it goes to the wrong person? I'll give you an example. When doing uh, penetration tests in a former life, uh, one of the first treasure troves of information to gather would be LinkedIn profiles because depending on the particular vertical, you would find a network engineer or a security architect that has effectively enumerated every security tool that they might have in their profile, simply saying, I have experience and expertise with all of this, the implication being this is what we use. I see it a little similar when we're talking about this aspect. Have you observed anything along those lines? You're really treading on like a spiritual cyber arch, like a <laughs> war here, like where there's two sides. Um, look, I have a pretty good principle on myself of transparency is always the right thing to do. There's bounds around that in terms of, you know, what have you, right? There's clearly limits to that and bounds around it of, of how that's applied. But Transparency in general is a good thing. Transparency builds trust. Um, in, in related to, you brought up a few questions there, but like, can the adversary use a bomb? Like, like if they pose as a customer and they get the bill of materials and they can see all the libraries that are in there and the versions of those libraries and create new exploits. Um, yeah, I, th I think it's a, it's a very real risk associated with it. But then I ask myself the question, are we winning the zero day battle now? And I don't know. Do you think we're, we're winning the zero-day battle now, Sean? I don't believe that data has proven itself <laughs> to be a success. I don't think we're winning it now, right? Like, um, I don't have the data right in front of me, but I would hazard a guess that, you know, anyone that listens to this or my friends would say that there's probably more zero days here in, in the last couple of years than there has been. It gets going up. Um, so I, I think just in general, macro-wise, if I step step aside from kind of that spiritual sort of argument that that has merits on either side, I look and say, we need all the help we can get. Um, Zero-day vulnerabilities are a very real thing. Um, they're, they're now ubiquitous, not just across certain platforms like major operating systems that we use, but our, our phones, right? Different vendors on different phones. There, there's things going on. Uh, there's 
it's just a very real problem that is really taxing to the teams because every time a zero day comes out, it's all about that response time. It's all about that instant response, those forensics, et cetera, right? And that's happening more and more and more and more as time goes on. So from my perspective and just personally speaking, I, I always err on that. Uh, I think at the side of transparency, if, we, if the edge right now is on the adversary, perhaps the edge will, will shift a little bit more in the defender's direction if, if we can get this thing right. But I, I, do, I genuinely think there's valid arguments on either side. But you did bring up LinkedIn, which I think is interesting. I, I'm not a huge poster on LinkedIn, but I, I do participate a lot. That, that's very interesting to me. Another trade-off. It's like, it's just the, the never-ending tool question, Sean. It's like, we're going to get a new tool. That tool is going to cause us great opportunities, but there's always a flip side of that coin, which is great risks. And I don't think LinkedIn's ever any different, but I would never tell someone on my team, hey, don't use LinkedIn to drive your career, drive your professional relationships uh, or that collaboration. I do think we should always be careful online with what we share and stuff like that. And, and, you know, doing those sorts of sweeps in certain industries and environments is something that's going on right now, but that data is out there. All right. So how do we, how do we deal with it? It's like the, the biggest question. So, um, I, again, I, that, that's a hard one for me because if I'm, if I'm sitting in front of an executive, I'm going to, I'm going to advise them on limited and proper use of LinkedIn, but, um, that doesn't go for everyone because it is a real tool for a lot of people. And it does put a lot of a lot of info out there, but then again, so does Facebook, so does the other stuff, so does the other social media. Our our general sharing generation that we're into right now, I don't think that's going away. So I think like at some point in time, we need to understand that that's a risk that's here to stay. And what do we what do we do to continue to mitigate it? And I think that's the the multi billion dollar question. It's, it is a multi-billion dollar question. <laughs> it's it's, it's going to be one that exists, I think, long after I, I retire out of this industry, to be honest. Um, and the, I thought you brought up a good like pen tester thing, too. That is inherently you know, supplier security or vendor risk management. At some point, trust has to be extended. Right. There is no way to operate a business without it, whether that is, as I mentioned, a cloud provider with a shared responsibility model or you know, inputting code into your environment for Makat's company that doesn't have a bomb or can't really talk about a secure software development framework or a person that comes into your environment and, you know, perform something and gets data, right? Um, but I think it, the same rules apply, right? Is, is how do you establish that trust between those two parties? In the case of the pen tester, I'm talking about the vetting. I'm talking right. about history of events, right? I'm talking about what are you doing to make sure this is a good person? What's your insider threat program like? How do you monitor these people to make sure that they're, they are good people? What do we do to firewall them off from other, other things? Those are the conversations you have to have around there. But in the end, none of us can do this alone. So at some point, we got to extend that trust. And it's just getting those guardrails, those limits, those processes, and just being frank with the conversations. Michael, last question for you. And this is a very broad one, but I am curious. With all of the conversations that you have amongst other CISOs and observations you've made yourself about your own program, what have you found to be words of wisdom that you could share with other CISOs about either pitfalls or challenges and ways of overcoming some of those challenges? For example, I hear from CISOs that are struggling to get an audience with the right stakeholders in the business or getting other aspects of the business on board with a particular security investment. What, what have you found to be partly of what's made you so successful as a leader? What approaches might you be able to share with the audience regarding things that you have in your tool belt to really help drive some of these initiatives? Well, I'll, I'll hit on the first couple things you said there. And, and thank you for the compliment that says I'm successful on this. I Look, we are all work in progress here. So I, I think that I've been very blessed to run and, and be a part of large cyber and IT programs. Um, but I've also been blessed to have, as we mentioned, a ton of amazing mentors and people who a, across every job have really helped me kind of accelerate, but more importantly, have challenged me 
and got and hit me out of my comfort zone if they see I'm in it externally, even if my self-reflection doesn't see it. So I just want to be like clear there. But you had mentioned the audience and we had talked earlier about emotional control. It isn't anyone's fault except yours, right? Like, so I just, I want, I, I don't want people in this industry to get in the victim mentality mode of this person won't talk to me or this person doesn't take me seriously and say, I'm a victim. Because I think the minute you do, that's a behavior that's not going to lead to anywhere good. That's just going to lead to somewhere bad. There could be an instance in a company where people don't take cyber seriously and it really bothers you. I'm, I, again, fortunate to not be in that, in that situation, uh, but I've known people in industry who have been in that. And we're in a, a pivotal moment in the cyber discipline right now. Uh, if your company's not taking it seriously, I would take that as, and it's something that you don't think is going to change. Like you can be a culture champion, you can do this. You're you're free to go find other opportunities and find a team that's supportive and takes it seriously. If there's an ability, if you think it's not that deep-seated, you know, look at yourself and say, am I the right culture champion? Have I exhibited the right amount of emotional control? Am I doing everything I can to develop relationships and my ability to influence a broad technical and non-technical audience? Those are the things that you need to be asking yourself and saying, am I not at the table because I'm not doing enough with my skill set? my ability to get that person at the table. So I would say avoid victim mentality there. From an investment standpoint, I've already talked about it. Um, you know, I, I run an internal cyber program. I protect the, the IT services and the technology that DXC users, the 135,000 women and men of DXC use every day to fulfill their jobs, the super important jobs we talked about across our you know, global customer base. Um, but with that said, it's a cost. Right. And there's a, there's a cost trade-off decision associated with everything. And I think being very clear about that and understanding it, but basing that on risk, basing that on your vision of a program, your roadmap for a program is absolutely critical. And if you can't articulate that simply to uh, a board level audience or a CEO level audience or, or a non-technical audience, you're, you're doing yourself a detriment in terms of pursuing those goals that you want to pursue. So understanding, as I mentioned earlier, how do I storytell? Right? How do I simplify things down? How do I talk about zero trust to someone who's not in cyber? It's a very abstract concept where there's a number of different investments and capabilities and roadmaps and things you have to really make simple. Like if I am on an elevator for five minutes with the key decision maker, what am I going to say? And if you know what you're going to say, Sean, have you practiced it in the mirror? <laughs> have you right. No, I'm dead serious. Have you practiced it in the last two weeks? Right. Most people will say, no, nah, I feel kind of corny, but you have to do that. You have to sit there and you have to say, what's my message? I have one slide on my desktop that can articulate my program and I can deliver it in under a minute and a half. And the reason I have that is because I know I'm going to be in those situations. I could do it right now for you. I won't. I'm going to be in those situations. I'm going to have to really, I'm going to have to really apply myself and, and, snap into it as quick as possible because that opportunity is going to come. Those opportunities will be structured and unstructured. You got to be ready for the unstructured ones as much as you're ready for the structured ones. Uh, but I finally, I think to, to close out this question, and I don't know if I'm like, I don't know if I talk the longest of all your audience members, but I feel like right. just going on and on and on. Yeah, you're great, right? I think talent, it, talent rules the day. So when you think about your role as a leader in a cyber program, the number one thing is how are you developing your people? How are you developing a succession plan? How are you developing the next generation of talent leaders? And I mean, when I look at my job and the jobs I've had, it's the thing I'm most prideful about is not the cool piece of tech I put in that was really cool for three or four years and then was upgraded to something else. It was the people that were on my team that that we had, we mentored, that we put in a stretch position, that we simply gave an opportunity to, and then they succeeded. And quite frankly, there's some that don't succeed, and that's okay too, right? But building that high-performing team, being a member of a high-performing team, learning from high-performing leaders myself, I think that's the number one thing that we need to focus on, on passing through. Everyone's going to talk about the talent gap within cyber. Nobody talks about the opportunity gap. Actually, they're starting to talk about it now, to be quite clear. But every 
requisition you put out there doesn't have to have every certification under the sun. At some point in time, you have to give someone a chance and you can give people internally a chance. Cyber is a really hot topic. You have a lot of IT professionals interested in cyber, a lot of legal professionals. People are just itching for the opportunity. So when I, when I look at giving someone an opportunity, is there a hunger to learn? Is there a passion? Is, is there good soft skills? Do they work well on a team or in a room if they're a, a SOC operator? Those are the things I really look for. I don't look for how many letters you have behind your name and how great are you at passing tests. So I think we need to really get out of that, which is, which is what you're doing, frankly, with this podcast and things people are doing around the industry here is, uh, what are we doing to pass it along, Right. Uh, what are we doing to build that that workforce gap? What are we doing to build resiliency in our companies that if we get another opportunity or we do something else, that that program is going to continue to improve over time, even when you're gone? Michael, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Fantastic insights and really appreciate you making the time. Yeah, I, I appreciate the opportunity, Sean. This has been super fun. And I, and I do value you as a partner. We talked about a lot of that trust and that value. And I think, um, I think what you represent is exactly that. So just appreciate the opportunity to join you today. Thank you again, Michael. You've been listening to the CISO's Gambit. I'm your host, Sean Quirico. Thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed this show, please leave a comment and subscribe. Content on this podcast may contain forward-looking statements that are current as of the date of recording and subject to change. These statements are subject to the safe harbor provisions created by the Private Securities Litigation Reform Act of 1995. Full legal disclaimers are available at revolutionaries.zscaler.com.